A locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown, raised or produced locally. This is the Locavore Podcast, brought to you by White's IGA. Welcome to my Locavore Podcast. I'm Ros White and this is a podcast where we dig deep into the stories behind the hundreds of locally sourced, artisan, bespoke and innovative products available to you in one location at White's IGA on the Sunshine Coast. Our Locavore program was officially launched in 2013 to showcase and highlight to our customers where their food and goodies come from and help connect them to the families who create it. Today we're going to mix it up a little bit because it's White's IGA's 30th year in business. So we are celebrating throughout the whole month of October. So we have a very special guest, two very special guests in the studio today. One is my husband, Michael White. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) And the other is I'm going to be handing over to a fantastic lady that we have had the pleasure of working alongside of for the best part of a decade. Dom Kimber is a journalist, a copywriter, also runs her own or has her own podcast, which is called Your Biz. And Dom has been helping us with our social media content and our marketing. And it is an absolute pleasure to work with Dom. And so I'm handing the reins over to Dom. And Dom's going to actually dig a little bit deeper in the White's IGA story. So welcome, Dom. Thank you, Roz. I am very, very excited and honoured to be here today to chat about your story and to hear all of the juicy details of the journey over the last 30 years, because it's a pretty big month for you guys, isn't it, this month? It is. We've got lots planned, lots of fantastic giveaways. We're giving away $30,000 to a lucky shopper, so $20,000 for basically 12 months of groceries. And then 10000 that winner gets to choose $10,000 to donate to their chosen charity. Wowzers. What, what a way to celebrate. What a way to mark 30 years. That's incredible. We hear a lot about business stories and we see a lot of big successful stories, but I want to start right at the beginning with you guys. And I want to hear... I want to understand why, why did you get into retail? Why groceries? What was the pull there for you guys? I was a bank officer with the Westpac Bank and banking was getting, going through a downsizing exercise. My bank manager at the time said to me that I was young enough to try another career. Uh, Maybe he was trying to get rid of me. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I started looking around for a business. The other influencing factor was the fact that we, I'd been transferred all through the state with the bank and I got to Kuroi and then to Tawantan in the in the Westpac Bank and the Sunshine Coast was quite appealing. Being a country boy and never really getting to the beach was, was a, a dominating factor in deciding. I'd, I'd also met Roz and... Just that, as a side, I also met. <laughs> and Roz was happy to stay on the coast. She had family here and so I started looking around at businesses all over the place. And that was a very major decision to actually exit the bank after 14 years. Yeah, but you come from a background that's surrounded by food, right? You're from, both of you from farming backgrounds or production backgrounds. Tell me a little bit about that and how that might have helped influence the direction that you've gone into. Yeah, I'm from a a dairy farm background, lived on a farm till I was nearly 17. 
parents decide it was time to to try something different and they sold the farm and we and we were always told that the farming industry wasn't their farm wasn't big enough for we had I had two brothers and we were always told that we had to make our own way in life so we forged a career in whatever we, we wanted to do but it was, certainly wasn't farming but farming taught you a lot about food production good times and bad times with weather and also hard work taught you how to work parents had to work off the farm to help pay the bills and we were left to milk cows and any bits they couldn't get to we we helped out mm. at a very young age I bet that gave an incredible insight into the experience of what it's like to be on that first point of, of food production, of creating the food that appears on the shelves, right? Do you feel like that's helped lead the direction that you've taken the business and the energy that you've actually created around White's IGA as the big supporter of local that it is known as today? Uh, I've probably had some influence, probably not as not a major. I guess the major part was that when you start, uh, when you first buy a business, you've got to work really hard. I'd already had that instilled in me from a young age, from working on the farm. So that was a real incredible asset to have. And I wasn't too concerned about working six or seven days a week because farming is a six to seven days a week proposition. On the farm, we, we did do a lot of, my father grew a lot of crops and grain and loosen hay for lots of people. And particularly now with everyone having horses and whatever. So plus the milking part of it. We went obviously when the farm was first set up by mum and dad. It was a it was a cream based milking operation, and then it turned into a bulk milk operation. And obviously, over the thirty years, we've sold truckloads and truckloads of milk. So, yeah. yes, I guess it does relate. Yeah, to so, a certain degree. So you've you've made the move into retail, and you've decided to go for it. Tell me about. What was it like stepping into, first of all, a brand new industry and, and and a brand new business, new to business, right? What was that like? What were some of the things that you faced? And tell me about that time. When we decided to buy the Night Owl franchise convenience store business in Aerodrome Road, it was, I guess it was exciting. We did a trip around to our parents, wherever where Ros's parents were and mine, and we had a bit of a break, not a long break, but and then we... I threw myself into that business. I can still remember the first day there and looking around this this store thinking, where does all these products come from? Like, <laughs> how am I ever going to do this? Fortunately, the people we bought it off were very helpful and stayed on with me to teach me all the things you need to know about running a, a retail store. Yeah. And then over time, it became easy. It was just a big learning curve right from day one. Yeah, I bet. Mm. What were some of those big challenges that you faced and and how did you find your way around it? Did you have to do any diversifying of how you did things to get through those early years? Because any business person knows those early years are hard, right? Those first few years, they're not easy for anyone. Yeah, it was hard because I was the only person there for 12 hours from 6 till 6 and then we had staff from from six till midnight because it was a franchise operation which had to be open from six in the morning till midnight. So you did everything. Customers come in, you'd have to serve them. The stock had come in, you'd have to do the orders. And, and even back then we priced every single item with a with a pricing gun because 
we didn't have any scanning systems or computers to do that. So it was quite a quite a, a big learning curve, yes. And Roz wasn't that interested in <laughs> what I was doing, <laughs> but she was very supportive and we were in a relatively new relationship and she stood by me and stuck by me and I was very appreciative of that. Yeah, so you were you were still at the bank at this time. You were working in the bank, Ros, is that right? Mm. Yeah, I continued on in the bank for a number of years afterwards because, and that was basically because we couldn't afford for both of us. We weren't really making a lot of money out of the business for a number of years. And yeah, and no, I really didn't have any, yeah, I wasn't really engaged in the business like Michael was in the beginning. I was just his, as he said, his supporter. And I used to drag myself in there and do shifts, but I didn't, never loved it, I can tell you right now. <laughs> but it's all good. We got through. Mm. And I understand, Michael, you really began to problem solve when those times were hard. Like you had like almost like little side hustles with, with was it chockies or some kind of An opportunity hustle? came up after a couple of years working there where I probably was getting a little bit out of being so committed to being there all the time. Yeah. So an opportunity arose where one of the suppliers of homemade chocolates had a run on the Sunshine Coast, which was in addition, or he'd set up a run on the Sunshine Coast. He had about 30 shops that he he supplied to. And in conversation, I thought it it could be expanded and grown and we bought that part of the run off him and I'd put staff in place in the store a couple of days a week so I could go and do that. I built that business up to about 100 stores and it was quite a quite a profitable exercise and it got me out of the shop for those 12 hours each day. Yeah, yeah. so you have the night owl. Roz, you're working full-time in the... That was about the time that I came into the business then too, ah. I think. Yeah, I think I had a stint with Michael then when the chockey, when he had the chockey run. And then I went, kept on going back to the bank, didn't I? They kept inviting mm. me back and I kept going back. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I think it happened a couple of times. So, yeah, juggled in between the store when Mikey had the chockey run and then, yeah, teetered around, jumped around for a little while. And then eventually I bowed out of banking altogether and joined forces with this man over here. Yeah, okay. Mm. But the uh, confectionery run or supply of the homemade chocolates and all different things was the opener for me for other opportunities in, in the retail industry, which was uh-huh. like supermarkets, bit more bit bigger stores than the convenience store that we were in. That's where I identified Areas like Bly Bly, Mount Coolum, Prigion Beach, and they, you could see those areas were just going to grow and grow and grow over the years. And we, I just used to talk to the, the operators, and if they wanted to, if they ever wanted to sell, to give me a call. Wow. So that's how we ended up in the first store, which was Mount Coolum. And they were ready to sell, they contacted me, and that's how we got into that, that location. So you're doing the chalky run and you're visiting all these different areas around the coast and all the while you're sniffing out opportunities and where the growth is and what the potential would be in different spots. Mm. So you you found that Mount Coulomb was up for sale, I imagine, and you made the leap. So what was that like when it became, because that's when Whiteside GA emerged, right? 
What was that like? Yeah, there's a piece missing there. We actually bought the night owl at Mooloola Bar, mm. and just before that, I'd sold the confectionery run. Right. When we bought the second night owl store, and then after that, Malcolm became available, and we we'd already sold Richardor by then. We got went back to one store. One store just wasn't motivating enough for me, from a financial point of view, and also from a, a career point of view. So. When these stores started to become available, we, we snapped them up. and We had our son one week after we bought the Night Owl Moolabar, didn't we? Mm. Oh, that would have been very interesting times. What was that like, growing this business and the potential and seeing all of the possibilities while stepping into parenthood, which is hard at the best of times? Mm. Tell me what that was like. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> it's, it was a big adjustment for us, parenthood. Stepping into those shoes was daunting. Michael and I, we, we've always been, we work hard, we play hard, never a dull moment and ever. And having, introducing a new little baby into our lives, Harry, he's, he, and he was a full tilt too. Yeah, it was a big adjustment, I think. Yeah, but plenty of people do it. Plenty of people work, have babies. So you just get on with it. It wasn't really, it was just normal life. You just adjust, make the adjustments and just keep going. Yeah. Well, certain, certainly a changing environment for us having a, a newborn and, and obviously from a work point of view, you try to be home more to be yes. with, with your child and to assist with Roz with the parenting. I remember coming home and having to bath Harry because <laughs> obviously things weren't going too good that day for us. No. <laughs> so that's fine. But I was, uh, I think I was 35 at that point, so I was probably well and truly ready to be a father and I was, I hope, I was hands-on enough and assisted as much as I could. Yeah, you were great, Dad. Still are. Mm. Yeah, and then, of course, little Sophie would have come along not too long after yeah, that time, so right? came into the world in uh, 2001, which was the year, I think that was just before we bought Mount Coolum, wasn't it? I think we bought Mount Coolum in 2002. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so... I guess that was a time, yeah, I was, Michael was obviously the primary kind of breadwinner and so I was having babies and just still continuing to support Michael and still working in the business as well. Mm. Everything, we were still doing everything, weren't we, at that stage, handwriting checks as well mm. and licking stamps and putting them on an envelope and sending them off on the snail mail. <laughs> yeah, there was one funny night, one funny day, Michael and it was a Saturday and we had a double-storey house and so I was upstairs I think I was licking stamps and putting them on envelopes and, and Michael was downstairs. Yeah. We had Harry and Soph. They were running around. They were both – Sophie was only three, wasn't she? And Harry would have been four or something, five, whatever. I don't know. They were little. And and I thought Harry and Soph were downstairs with Michael and he thought Harry and Sophie were upstairs with me. <laughs> and so Harry then comes and says to me or Michael – Where's Soph? I can't find Soph. We go, what do you mean? What? What? <laughs> anyway, we had a missing child. <laughs> and so we're running around madly. We couldn't find Soph anywhere. And two delinquent parents sitting working on a Saturday. Anyway, so we went into a mad panic and running up and down the street. And, oh, it was a crazy panic. Michael's in the car, took off. And here's Soph on her little scooter, a couple of hundred metres from the house, on her scooter, just hair flying in the wind, not a care in the world, on a scooter. What are you doing, Soph? Where are you going? And, and she goes, 
I'm going to Mount Coolum to see Max and Ruby. They were her <laughs> imaginary friends. She didn't have any, and even Harry was in a panic anyway, so we brought them home safely. Note to self, just make sure that, <laughs> don't assume anything. Oh, God, uh, they keep things interesting, kids, don't they? Yeah, That's they for do. sure. Mm. Yeah. So you had Mount Coolum and things were starting to take shape for Whiteside GA. What came next after that? What what was the next? Blah blah step? was next. The owners there went on a IJ conference actually to Tasmania, and they loved what they seen down there. And actually, when they come home, they wanted to sell their business. And we had attempted to buy that business once before, but they'd changed their mind and elected to stay. So when they wanted to go and do a B and B in Tasmania, they gave us a call, and we went out there to me, Ross, and we mm. sat on a couple of milk crates at the back of the store and negotiated a deal and the rest is history I suppose we, that's the that's the store that we we took on and that's created the river market shopping center and everything else that we've done at blah blah yeah at that time it was just a very small footprint and not what it is today so we demolished that store in 2013 and built a new one which is the supermarket that sits there today. So we still operated out of that existing store for nine years. Mm. Built the turnover up from about 60,000 to about 120. So that was hard going in a real small store. And we introduced lots of products to the locals that everyone said we wouldn't be able to sell. Mm. Soft cheeses and mm. you name it. Camembert cheese, what? <laughs> Can you imagine not having that in store now, for goodness oh. sake? <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting, the reaction, and it actually happened multiple times in different stores that we've bought over the years and we would be introducing new lines and want to introduce soft cheese, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and and we would get some resistance from the staff, that were the existing staff that were in those stores and saying, that won't sell here. And it was in the end, and this happened so many times, and in the end we go, let let the customer decide, mm. and which were why it was shared by an old friend who'd been a retailer for a very long time, a dear friend of ours, Richard, who passed away uh, a few years ago now, and that was Richie saying, let the customer decide. So it was definitely a philosophy mm. and an easy way to just allow the staff to open their minds to change and embrace new opportunities. And you know what? You let the customer decide. They will soon tell you. They are the boss. And so often it would go, the customer really did want that product. The reason that they can't shop there or or they don't buy it is because it's not available to them. So you introduce something fresh and new and often you will find that your customer will really embrace it. Mm. And, And so... It's just, it, it's just, that's I think what excites us about retail is being able to create beautiful destinations and our hand-picked range that's curated with our customer in mind. Mm. Yeah, because it's still very much what you're known for today, isn't it? Introducing those new, beautiful, especially the local products. That So let's talk a little bit about the Locavore program. Where did that come from? Where was that where was that idea born or was it just a natural progression of, of your values and things that you care about? Now, Roz will have to answer that one. <laughs> yeah, we, going back to your earlier question to Michael about what the influence might have been from growing up in a, a family of primary producers and I think, as you might have indicated, I grew up on the land as well. So there is that deep connection to 
production of food, understanding and having that insight of how it's not an easy process to grow and nurture and harvest and and deliver fresh food. It's I have enormous respect because I've seen it firsthand and how hard farmers work and how they're challenged by the elements, things that they can't control. And it requires enormous experience and focus and resilience to be able to combat all of those challenges. And so there is an enormous respect for that. And it's deep in my heart. So I have a deep connection. And I think with that love for fresh food and how it's produced and how it's, it, it, it's almost like a privilege for me as a retailer to accept that beautiful fresh food into my store and then offer it to a family, another family in the community to then enjoy that and nurture their family with that. It's like a journey. It's the story of that beautiful cheese or the lettuce or whatever it is and a humble product that has so much depth and meaning. And it's passed lovingly through so many pairs of hands that have worked hard to bring it and deliver it. And I guess it's the story of the journey of that food and the families who create it that was the inspiration for a program that would embrace and support that and tell that story so that our customers and our consumers and the people that enjoy it could be could understand the story behind the beautiful fresh product that they're enjoying. Every product on our shelves has a story and that's what the local philosophy and culture is meant to do is to be able to bring that story to life. Retailing is storytelling. And so we were facilitating this uh, beautiful fresh produce throughout our stores and offering it to our customers and I just wanted to create uh, a program that could harness all of that, all of that energy, all of that storytelling and so I created the Locavore program, which essentially a Locavore is a term in Wikipedia that is a person that chooses to eat or consume local food that's grown within a 160-mile radius is the term that you use in Wikipedia. But in Australia, metric system, 200 kilometres is essentially the similar thing. And so I basically just took that philosophy and that idea and created a a logo or an emblem so that local food could be identified easily in our store by our customers. So we've got a tractor symbol, which is now trademarked, and we have the local program. So customers come in, they see the tractor, they go, that's a local pro, that's been locally locally sourced or grown or supplied or manufactured or whatever. And, and it's just easy recognition for them so that they can be a part of the story. Yeah, I feel like the Locavore program has become such the heart of the stores, right? It's what, what you guys are known for in the stores. And it's, from what I understand, it's allowed so many local businesses and producers and suppliers to, to get their product in front of mm. the community. And not only that, by connecting the community with those products, it's better for the economy, it's better for the people that consume it, it's yeah. better for the people who make it. Yeah. Where do you see this going? Do you just do you have plans that it's just gonna it's gonna grow and it's gonna it's gonna grow until it for forever? I hope sense. so. Yeah, look, absolutely it'll be something that's abs- at the forefront of every single thing that we do. And the beautiful thing is that we have a team of advocates that also love it. So mm. all of our staff 
embrace it, they live it, they understand it, they're passionate about it, they get behind it, they promote it, they really support it and they believe in it. And so it's about creating a community of people that can understand it and enjoy it as well. And if that hap- if that happens outside of the walls of IGA, that's a fantastic thing. If the philosophy continues to expand right across the globe, that's a great thing. Let's not contain it to White's IGA. We, we're just promoters of it and we love it and we're advocates of the philosophy but let it grow and let it be part of everybody's lives because there's nothing not to love about it Mm. and as you say adds vibrancy and diversity into communities it it nurtures your family and your community it nurtures local families but it also is low food miles it's great for the planet it's you know travel the least amount of miles because you've got lettuce grown 15 minutes from the store so it hasn't traveled to Brisbane and back again, uh, it's fresher than fresh. It's grown in the most pristine environment. It's quality. There's just our tagline is taste the difference of fresh and local at White's IGA because you honestly taste the difference. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of that, when they say a musician, if you tell a story with your heart or if you make a dish with your heart, it tastes better. Mm. Yeah. And I believe that beautiful, fresh local food that's made by local families that love what they do. It's made with heart. It tastes better. Yeah, and I think even beyond the Locavore program, you can see the imprint of this energy on each and every store. So the storytelling aspect in every store, you look at Forest Glen, for example, and it's got pictures of the historic mm. buildings from Forest Glen's past. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to to hold for the community in when they're inside your stores. Yeah, we, it's just, again, about sharing and respecting and it's about connecting people in our community, telling stories that respecting backgrounds and the history and the people that were here before. Forest Glen sits on land where they grew beans and citrus and pineapples, hardworking local families producing food right there where that store is. And you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were the early pioneers of that area. Imagine how hard they would have worked and pioneering families and just, yeah, I think it's really important to recognise that and try and bring that into a modern setting or environment where people can also share in that. Mm. Three years is a pretty big milestone and you would have seen some big changes in industry, right? So tell me about what you've witnessed along the way. Sunshine Coast has certainly grown a lot in those 30 years and obviously some of our stores are located in new areas, Baringa and Forest Glen's probably not a new area, but it's obviously a, a growing area, a developing area, and because there's probably not much land left on the coast side of the Bruce Highway now, and it just seems to keep growing out. And then opportunities arise as population grows in these areas. There's been lots of changes. I drive around the coast and remember what buildings used to be and what places, and you think to yourself, gee, I must be getting old because I can... <laughs> You can remember when there's a, a corner store here or a butcher shop here and a house or whatever, and now it's four-storey units. Sunshine Coast has been great to us and it's been a lovely place to live and grow our businesses. Probably couldn't have wished to be in a better location. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think what really needs to be said is we don't do this. We haven't done this on our own. It's been with the support of our community and our team and nothing happens without people around you that support you and 
we're always mindful and grateful for that. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that and how important they are to us and continue to be. Um, We always say when you come and work with our family, or we do regard them as family, the White's IGA family, we're always talking about our family, our White's IGA family. We had family lunches in the office and we do (laughs) have lots of family type events. With our team, and we always say, once you know what happens when you become when you come work with White's IGA, you never leave. <laughs> Look, it's a long term. Is twenty years, fifteen years is quite regular for some of our employees, which is quite satisfying for us. Yeah, that would owners. be quite unheard of in the industry. Yeah, well, right? Dave is one of our longest serving. He's had a few interruptions here and there. Paul, they're probably the two longest serving. And they've been with us on and off. Dave worked at Night Owl Maroochydore, our very first store, and mm. he's still with us now. And Paul, he worked with us in uh, Malulaba. Yeah, we inherited Paul from when we bought the Night, Night Owl Malulaba in 1997. Wow. And so Paul, he was a... He originally like a little checkout chick, except he's a <laughs> he's not a chick, and he's now our business analyst. So he's actually holds one of our most senior positions in the business. Wow! And he's had his own journey and he's got his own story to tell. But yeah, quite amazing, really. Mm. Mm. Certainly, in, the industry's changed over those thirty years. Yeah, you go back to my original store. The fresh mix of our business was probably two percent. Like a little bit of fruit and veg and that was about it. We, which we used to source from the Natali brothers, didn't we? Yeah. The Natali brothers had a wholesaling business or a distribution uh, wholesale produce business in Maroochydore and 2nd Avenue, didn't they? Yep. And we used to, remember, we used to get a few old carrots and a, few, a bit of pumpkin. <laughs> I'd be there chopping it up at the front counter, mind you, where you serve the blooming customers. They put a cling wrap around it, chuck a little label on and... Yeah, they were funny mm. old days. And Michael was, yeah, Michael, in those early days when we were just learning the ropes and, and trying to understand what the heck we were doing, and Michael would, if somebody walked into the shop and they walked out and they didn't buy something, Michael would chase them down the street after <laughs> trying to find out why they didn't buy something. Uh, and then next week you'd have, a, if it was wholemeal flour or something, next week there'd be wholemeal flour sitting on the... So that was the extent of our market insights into customer mm. behaviour. <laughs> oh, I love that, though. And I think you still do a lot of that today, isn't it? It's like you said, let the customer decide if it's something that's needed, that's mm. wanted, that's desired. Then I think it's a great thing to take that on board and be able to bring mm. that into your stores. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the industry's had so many changes. Like when we first bought that store, there was two fruit barns in Aerodrome Road and two butchers, I, I believe. And not long after we'd bought that store, the Franklin's Big Fresh did a big refurb and within a couple of years, those two fruit buns were gone and those butcher shops were closed Mm -hmm. and everyone thought that we'd be next. But we actually grew each time one of those businesses, unfortunately, closed. It actually helped us in our growth and we obviously had good service and the products that they wanted and we were able to grow that business even in those with that adversity and part of that was seven-day trading came in as well when the Sunshine Plaza opened for the first time with with their expanded complex and now it's obviously probably doubled since then. Everything hasn't been a winner that we've done but you got to take the knocks and keep going. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. What sort of these big sort of financial struggles have you faced? Because I think we hear all the time about these success stories but there's more to it than that, isn't there, in business? In yeah, we've been fortunate on the way with um, obtaining finance to do the things that we wanted to do. 
some things have worked out really well and some things haven't. But we've always been prepared to sell to an owner operator of any business that we needed to. Whether we got our money back or not, we were happy just to keep moving. And I think that's an important thing. You can't just rest on, no, I'm not going to sell until I get all my money back. You have to make a business decision about, well, we've got to go we got to get out and we'll just do whatever we have to do to, to go. Probably probably the one of the biggest challenges was when we had a good store cracking along and then we had a major competitor come in and took us out at the knees. And that was simultaneous with the passing of my sister. So it was a very dark, gloomy time, yeah. And so we had financial pressure and terrible devastation and heartbreak all at the same time. And we decided to consolidate, remember, at that time. And we really had to. And, yeah, it was a very difficult time. We were on our knees for a little while. I was. And we built up to six stores and then mm, we got to, to a stage where three of them weren't really producing the profitability that you would expect from an investment. So mm. we made a decision just to cut back to the three good ones and do them properly. Mm and to exit the other three. And that was probably one of the best decisions we ever made. In hindsight. And also it assisted with workload and as Ros was, we were all suffering from the, the tragedy of Ro losing Ros's sister, yeah. So what were those stores that you let go of at the time? One was the Night Owl at Moolabar. Like obviously mm -hmm. it, was, it was a bit like a first child. You just never wanted to sell it. Yeah, that's But hard. eventually got to a stage where... The industry rule or saying is that the 80-20 rule, so we were probably spending our operational team at that point, which wasn't that big, we were probably spending 80% of their time was spent in the three stores that were only producing 20% of the profit of our overall businesses. We made the decision to sell those at whatever money we, we could get for them. We didn't do too bad. We offloaded the Night Owl, the Rothful store, which we opened from new and our Tin Can Bay store where we had major opposition come in unexpectedly. So we, we offloaded those three stores and we just concentrated on the three that we had and we consolidated and I think we, were, we had three for a number of years, four mm. or five years, and then we then started to grow again. And then we got through that and then we had another gamble with Bly Bly because there was a threat for a major competitor coming in there, wasn't there? And we were faced with a situation where we really had, there wasn't really an alternative. It was almost, it was that time in, our, in the journey that probably halfway, Mark, where you either went, all right, let's, you've just got to gamble everything to survive. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you won't survive. So mm -hmm. you're actually gambling all, but got nothing to lose. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was a pivotal moment, wasn't it? And that's where I'll often say it was like we just took everything we'd worked for and earned and put it on roulette, on black. Wow. And that was a time where finance was pretty hard. We were paying top of the tree finance because it was the last level of finance we could get to try and do what we needed to do to survive. And that was the decision we had to do, to make, was to, that's why on how that happened, how we demolished the old store and built the new one. But it wasn't just an easy road to just, oh, this is the next step. It was actually a pivotal moment of, if we didn't, we wouldn't have been, we would have been gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because mm. I think 
people see your beautiful stores and mm. don't know the history, don't know the story of, of, of the challenges that have come along the way. Mm. And I think you guys, 2020, for example, was an unprecedented time for everyone. Yeah. And that would have brought some incredibly unique and strange and the biggest challenges, I imagine, or some of the biggest challenges that you would have faced. Tell me a bit about that, because that would have been that would have been tough times too, right? Yeah, it was. It was we were in New Zealand at a conference in February of 2020. And I started getting phone calls from the ABC on the Sunshine Coast asking me if I wanted to do an interview because there was this crazy toilet paper behaviour going on. <laughs> and I've gone like, what, Hank? What? What is going on back home? Anyway, that was kind of like, okay, and then people are starting to hand, to hand sanitise around. I'm going, I can't wait to get home. What the? Yeah. Got home. Fortunate uh, for us, IGA is a global brand, so there's IGA stores around the world. And so I was able to make contact with a gentleman that headed up a 1,000 IGA stores in China and their head office is in Wuhan. Wow. <laughs> and so I made contact with Dr. Zhu and I said, what's happening on the ground? And so he gave me this incredible insight in, into kind of what we might expect uh, here and what we could be facing potentially with this mm. strange virus that's coming in and mm. potentially hitting our shores and going to wipe out humanity and... So I was just scrolling all these notes down and which kind of helped me to build our and write our, our business continuity plan mm. in preparedness for whatever might be coming. And honestly, I've looked back at that. So we were really ready. We were ready. We had a lot of things that we could just implement immediately because I was mm. on the front foot and able to mm. have that insight and that sharing thanks to Dr. Zhe. But it was it's hysterical because the first version of my business continuity plan is absolutely hilarious. Like I had the whole thing worked out where we had if the store was closed we would have skeleton staff we'd take orders online or on the phone and we would I actually had hazmat sort hazmat suits ordered wow gloves PPE full PE gobble gobble Gobbled. goggles <laughs> and and I had this system where people would drive in in their car the groceries would be packed in a box and you would pull up and we would put your food in the boot and then in our hazmat suit, we would go around with a mobile FPOS thing and you just put your card in, wind the window down to a crack, and we could still get to feed people. But in 2020, when COVID hit, we just simplified everything mm. and we basically became really shifted away from a business mindset into a community service to keep people safe and keep people fed. Mm. And then for our staff, it was a very, very, very trying time. And after two or three years, it did take its toll. Mm. The changes, the relentless changes, the instability, and there was this vulnerability that came through where we knew them we had to support them mm. and get them back to their full self. And so we've done a lot of work this year actually making sure that we've sustained their personal resilience. And But, yeah, no, it's an interesting time for sure mm. for many people. So it feels a little bit like we're, we're coming back to normality now and after all of that. And obviously you had last year Forest Glen opened and you are now with, have six stores across the coast. What's next? What is the vision? What is coming for Whiteside GA? Can you share anything with us? Not too sure whether there'll be any more stores. <laughs> Roz is, wants to just stay with what we've got for now and I've been in doing it for 30 years so it might be time for me to have a bit of a change of direction as well maybe just be happy with what we got and keep striving to make them better I guess 
I'm getting to an age now where I'm 61 and have to think about an exit plan in the next five to 10 years. So don't know what's ahead. Every year is a new beginning. Not sure. Every time we build a new store, I always say, I am never building another. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think I've heard this because <laughs> actually. It's all consuming. <laughs> it takes every energy, every cell in your body is exercised to create something that like that and it's exhausting. So you, but you know what? You just got to be sometimes you just, quanti- quality isn't quantity. Quantity isn't quality, sorry. Why do you want to just keep, there comes a time when you just want to just sit and just enjoy and have some space maybe and enjoy life, enjoy children. We've worked our butts off for decades, which a lot of people do. I'm not making a big fuss about that, but there maybe comes a time when you just want to sit and maybe consolidate too. It's it's wise sometimes just to sit and consolidate. Time to smell just, the roses. Like yeah. That's what they- Maybe we're having a pause period. We'll see. Yeah. We certainly both have a lot to be proud of. Your impact throughout the Sunshine Coast is very visible to all the communities. So, yeah, we will wait to see if and when anything else happens. Just on that comment, like Roz has been very, very good for our business with her community involvement. I just don't know how she does it or all all those charities and business groups that she's involved with. I get up at four or five every day and by the time I get home at four or five I'm that's it for me I don't want to be talking business or helping or dealing with people just want to do what I want to do at that at that stage of the day so anyway you do all right Mr White he does a lot of extra over and above too he's just a quiet achiever yeah I think I've said this before I love watching how you guys talk about each other to each other it's very it's lovely to watch I always say I've got him on a week-by-week lease sometimes. (laughs) See how he is next week. Well, thank you so much to you both for sharing your stories with me and with everybody listening. This coming month uh, of celebrations is going to be huge and I can't wait to see what happens. The $30,000 giveaway, anybody that's listening, get involved in that. That's going to be a huge, huge opportunity and there's going to be a whole heap of other celebrations going on in-store, online, so yes stay tuned so thank you so much for everyone listening and thank you Roz and Michael for speaking with me today thank you Dom thanks Dom that's been a pleasure yeah trip down memory lane nice a locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown raised or produced locally this is the locavore podcast brought to you by White's IGA 